Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schaus. Episode 13, Vasily III and Why Moscow. Ivan the Great is dead, and Vasily, his son, has secured the throne. Despite having fallen in and out of favor with his father, Vasily III was now the Grand Prince of Moscow, and he was to rule wisely for the next 28 years by basically following his far more famous father's footsteps. First off, though, Vasily needed to make sure that none of his four brothers could gain enough of a power base to threaten his authority. While each of the sons received land, Vasily's holdings were greater than all his brothers combined. Ivan, before he passed, also made all his sons sign an oath to the oldest brother, as well as spelling out what each could and could not do. For instance, Vasily could mint coinage and settle serious criminal matters, while the others were forbidden to do so. One of his brothers, though, Simeon, tried to break away by enlisting Lithuania as an ally, but that failed, and only ple pleadings from the church and close friends of Vasily were able to save Simeon's life from the wrath of the Grand Prince. According to Russian chroniclers of the time, Vasily regularly had secret agents spy on his brothers. Vasily III was as ruthless, if not more so, than his father. One law he instituted showed how far he would go to keep things in check. This rule, started but not fully implemented, was one that repealed the right of departure. In the past, if a prince of a city felt he was being mistreated by the Grand Prince, he could leave the protection of the Muscovite Prince and ally himself with another country. This happened quite often in the borderlands with Lithuania. What this law said was that defecting from Lithuania to join up with Moscow was all fine and dandy, but going the other way was now going to be viewed as treason, punishable by death and confiscation of all the prince's land by the state. This law is used by many historians as another marker of the end of the appanage system. The first city to try to make a break from Moscow to the Lithuanian side was Ryazan. It's hard to comprehend what possessed the prince of the city to think he could pull it off, but he tried nonetheless, failed, and was quickly forced to flee to Lithuania to, to avoid execution with Vasily's army approaching. Vasily now proceeded to gather in more land. Now, to understand the enormity of the land gains, think back to Prince Daniel and the size of Moscow when he took over. It was a mere 600 square miles. Ivan Moneybags, along with Vasily I, expanded the control to over 15,000 square miles. But between Vasily the Blind, Ivan the Great, and Vasily III, it reached a staggering 2.8 million square miles, with Ivan and his son personally being responsible for 2.4 million square miles of the expansion. Now, before we talk more about Vasily's reign, let's tackle the question. Why did Moscow become the predominant power in Russia and not some other city? There were certainly more powerful cities like Novgorod, some more senior like Vladimir, Rostov, and Suzdal, and there were equally capable rivals like Tver. So what was it that gave them the competitive edge? There are a number of reasons, one of course being luck, but in my opinion and the opinion of a number of eminent Russian historians, 
The reason for Moscow's rise is the same as what makes many a retail business succeed. Location, location, location. Moscow was on a river near the headwaters of four important Russian rivers, the Oka, the Volga, the Don, and the Dnieper. Commerce traveled most efficiently by boat, so Moscow was easily able to attract merchants, and with it, wealth. It was also a stopping point because of the crossing of three major roads. In ancient times, all roads led to Rome. In medieval times in Russia, all roads led to Moscow. One came from the southwest, from Kiev. Many wanting to flee the Mongol devastation of the farmlands traveled the road to come to Moscow for safety. It was also centrally located, which gave it a cushion from invaders. Novgorod had to fight off the threats from the northwest, and Ryazin had to deal with the southwestern attacks, like the devastating one from Tamerlane in 1385. Economic reasons also come into play, which is especially and obviously emphasized by Soviet-era historians. No doubt the water access in many directions was key, but its ability to recruit and obtain peasants to work the land was critical. Whether it was enticements or outright purchase of prisoners from the Mongols, obtaining food from the land surrounding the city was a big boom. The next reason was the Grand Princes themselves. Whether by luck or good bloodlines, the Grand Princes from Daniel on were to this point in Moscow's history shrewd, brave, calculating, and for the most part, highly intelligent. When caution was needed to deal with the horde, you had Ivan Kalita. When you needed to throw off the yoke, you had Dmitri Donskoy and Ivan the Great. They also had the foresight to set up a stable system of inheritance, which was the opposite of what the Kievian princes did, and was a major reason for the decline of that city's fortunes. When gathering of the lands occurred, they had, according to the late eminent Russian historian Klyuchevsky, five methods of obtaining territory. Purchase, armed seizure, diplomatic seizure with the aid of the Golden Horde, service agreements with appanage princes, and the settlement by Moscovites of the lands beyond the Volga. One last, but certainly not the least reason Moscow gained preeminence, was the church. It is hard to overestimate the significance of the role of the church's move to Moscow was. This was a troubling time in Russia as well as the rest of Europe. Mongol raids devastated whole populations. The Turks overthrew the seemingly eternal Byzantine Empire. The plague ravaged countries and was viewed as God's vengeance on the wickedness of mankind. And the church, or as they put it in their liturgies, the one true church was the way to salvation. Remember in the Slapshot podcast on St. Sergius of Radnez that due to his work, the lands owned by the church grew enormously, and with Moscow being the center of the church's world, so too did Moscow's influence grow. Now back to Vasily. Fresh from his annexation of Ryazan, Vasily moved on to Pesky Piskov. Yes, I've waited a long time to say that. Pesky Piskov. So, in 1510, Vasily said, enough is enough, and he moved with his army towards the semi-autonomous city. 
The leaders knew it couldn't last. They knew that they would eventually fall under Moscow's sphere of influence. So they gave up without a fight. Vasily sent troops to remove the bell to call in the Vetch, just as Ivan had done to Novgorod years before. The Vetch was dissolved and was to meet no more. From there, Vasily set his sights on Smolensk, a former Kievian ally. Between 1513 and 1514, the Russians fought the Lithuanians three times until Vasily's army proved victorious. Smolensk was a key trade center, so to Vasily, this was an important economic gain. The Grand Prince now sought to consolidate his power base. With spies everywhere, he searched for anyone who questioned his autocracy, and if you did, you were lucky to stay alive. Those who weren't executed were exiled, but most people accepted their subservient roles without question. Of course, Vasily was not a ruler who was tolerant of any insubordination. He was far more ruthless when it came to hereditary claims from father to son. No appanage handovers anymore. No changing of ownership of the lands whereby an uncle or cousin or younger brother could stake a claim. That is what caused Kiev's decline and collapsed. He knew that. No more internecine wars. Also, no more handing down to sons as if they were not going to serve of the Grand Prince. Their holdings and everything they had was at the will of the Grand Prince. What Vasily had wrought was to be a solid lineage, but it also opened up the belly of its greatest weakness, a weakness that was eventually to lead to the Russian Revolution and the overthrow of the Romanovs in 1917. He created a system that did not reward excellence and performance, whereby someone could move upward in rank because of their hard work. He created a system that kept the boyar's mind off of the absolutism that Ivan and Vasily had put into place. This became so apparent when the Russo-Japanese War took place in the early 1900s, when there was a severe lack of capable generals and officers. Having now conquered Piskov and Smolensk, it was time to start dealing with the remnants of the Golden Horde. First, he set his sights on Kazan, but was unable to take the strongly fortified city. Instead, he built a competing fort city nearby called Vasilia Vizkaya, which competed with Hazan successfully, I might add, as a trading post economically weakening their rival. If you can't knock them down, compete. At home, though, a problem was brewing. His wife, Grand Princess Solomonia, was unable to bear any children. Vasily was patient with his loving wife, but he was concerned about not having an heir, so much so that he forbade his brothers from marrying until he had a son. Then, in 1525, he finally asked for and got permission from the church to rid himself of his barren wife, who was sent to a nunnery to live out her life. He then married Elena Glinskaya, a niece of Prince Michael Glinsky, a Lithuanian who switched to Vasily's side during the battles over Smolensk. This tie to Lithuania was to have devastating consequences on one of Vasily's sons' psyche. During this time, the battle between the possessors and non-possessors, which tormented Ivan, was beginning to come to a head. Nil Sorsky, leader of the non-possessors, died in 1508 
and was replaced by a monk named Vassian the Cross-Eyed. He was a cousin of Vasilis, a former prince, who was likely a Judaizer. Vassian backed Vasilis wish to take the lands of the church. Now Vasili, of course, seeing the opportunity, brought in a Greek named Maxim to Moscow to help translate the Greek Orthodox writings into Slavonic. It was a very odd choice, as Maxim was not versed at all in the Russian language. He also had lived in Rome for a while, which made him a suspicious character to many in the church. But Maxim was a disciple of one Girolamo Savonarola, a monk who was against papal wealth and the authority of kings over the church. He was eventually excommunicated by Pope Alexander VI and burned at the stake in Florence. Maxim was also very strong in his feelings about the separation of church and state, as well as the stripping of the church of all worldly possessions. This made Vassian and Maxim a radical and potent pair that Vasily hoped would put the non-possessors into a more powerful position. With the new metropolitan, though, Daniel, having given his blessings to Vasily to marry anew, he called in his chips and demanded that Maxim and Vassian be tried for heresy and a number of other crimes. In 1525, Maxim was arrested, excommunicated, and imprisoned at a monastery at Volokolomask. In 1531, Vassian was also convicted of heresy and imprisoned at the same monastery. This marked the end of the non-possessors movement and any thought by Vasily to take the church's lands away. Vasily also continued his father's policy of opening negotiations with other world leaders. In 1508, he signed a 60-year peace treaty with Sweden, which helped to re-establish communications with the Hanseatic League, which his father had driven out of Novgorod. He accepted envoys from Hungary, the Holy Roman Empire, Emperor, and Denmark. One that unfortunately got away was the Mughal Emperor of India, the famous Babar, who was a descendant of Genghis Khan and a bulwark against the Turks in the Ottoman Empire. But Vasily, he thought him to be of no consequence. Nearing the end of his life, which came due to an infection, he had two sons born from his second marriage. One he named Ivan after his father, and the second was Yuri. On December 3, 1533, Vasily III dies, leaving his three-year-old son to be heir to the vast holdings of the Grand Prince of Moscow. Ivan IV, known to history as Ivan the Terrible, which I will explain next episode may be a misinterpretation, was without a father to guide him, which was to have devastating effects on Russia. Now, for this week in Russian history, for the week of July 18th through the 24th, in 1774, the Treaty of Kuchuk, Kenyai ends the Russo-Turkish War. 1918, Grand Duchess Elizabeth Fyodorovna, sister of Tsar Nicholas II's wife Alexandra, is buried alive by the Bolsheviks. Now I'd like to announce the first winner of an iPhone app for the Russian Rulers podcast, and it's Eric L., who asked the following question. Whom do you think is the most popular saint in Russia? I know St. Andrew is the official patron saint, but they also revere St. George, St. Nicholas, and St. Sergius, plus the canonized rulers Vladimir, Olga, Alexander Nevsky, and Dmitry Donskoy, and of course the Virgin Mother. 
Maybe we should add up the icons in Russian taxis. Great podcast. Well, thank you, Eric. Your question is a tough one, which will take some research, namely asking fellow Russian Orthodox Church members and priests, as well as digging in my books and other resources. As a matter of fact, the answer will come out in an upcoming Slapshot edition of the podcast. So I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I'll be taking a week off to get ready for the big topic of Ivan the Terrible's life and time. It will be a, quite a long, multi-week series. But don't forget the free Russian Rulers iPod app contest for the two best questions, suggestions, or comments. One of them is still up for grabs. So don't forget to visit the websites russianrulers.podhoster.com and markshouse.com and the Facebook fan page, Russian Rulers Podcast. Make a comment, ask a question, make a suggestion, and as always, das vidanya i spasiba bolshoya.